From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, Ron Elving on the weekend politics as debt limit talks stumble with President Biden at the G7. And later, the mother of a fallen police officer on her daughter who dedicated her life to their city. A new book salutes women who broke barriers in American journalism. And new music from Marty Stewart on some classic themes. Down at the heart and soul, at the foundational level of country music, you'll find songs that speak the stories. And that is my favorite kind of country music, the songs that tell the stories. His new album is called Altitude. Set to take off with us, first our newscast at Saturday, May 20, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Debt talks between the White House and House Republican negotiators broke off last night amid uncertainty about the outcome and timing of a possible deal. NPR's Barbara Sprunt has more on the on-again, off-again talks. Louisiana Congressman Garrett Graves, part of Speaker McCarthy's negotiating team, told reporters this latest meeting wasn't a negotiation, but rather a discussion about a, quote, realistic path forward. At uh, directions Speaker of the House, we um, we reengaged, um, had a very very candid discussion, uh, talking about um, where we are, talking about um, where things need to be, what's reasonable and acceptable. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has previously warned lawmakers that the U.S. could run out of cash to pay its bills as soon as June 1st. Barbara Sprunt, NPR News, the Capitol. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is now in Japan for diplomatic talks with the leaders of the world's most powerful democracies. His arrival at the G7 summit in Hiroshima comes on the heels of U.S. approval of a scheme to allow Ukrainian pilots to train on American-made F-16 fighter jets. Yuri Sack, an advisor to Ukraine's defense minister, told the BBC that it was a significant development for Ukraine. Ukraine continues to be the target of massive missile strikes, drone strikes. Russia continues to have air superiority and air supremacy. For Ukraine to be able to protect its skies better and for Ukraine to be able to provide proper cover to the ground forces during the military operations in the east and south of Ukraine, having fourth-generation aircraft, having F-16s, which are the most versatile and most multi-role and that's why most suitable platform is very, very important. Member nations are moving to tighten sanctions against Russia over its 15-month invasion of Ukraine. The Nebraska legislature has approved a bill combining abortion restrictions with restrictions on gender-affirming care. Republican Governor Jim Pillen says he will sign it. Fred Knapp of Nebraska Public Media reports. The bill's passage followed months of legislative battles during which opponents filibustered almost every other bill in an attempt to derail this one. A proposal to ban most abortions after six weeks appeared dead three weeks ago, but then supporters merged a 12-week ban with a bill restricting health care for transgender youth. Republican State Senator Kathleen Kauth denied opponents' accusations that the prohibitions are based on hate. The reason we brought this bill is because we love kids. We want to see them grow up and be happy, healthy adults. Opponents have vowed a court challenge. For NPR News, I'm Fred Knapp in Lincoln, Nebraska. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Air National Guardsman accused of leaking top-secret intelligence will remain in custody while he awaits his trial. WBUR's Ali Jarmanning reports on Jack Teixeira's detention hearing yesterday. Magistrate Judge David Hennessy said Teixeira cavalierly broke the law when he posted classified documents online, even though he knew it was wrong. And that made the judge wary of releasing him. Prosecutors argued that Teixeira could flee with help from a foreign government in exchange for more classified information. The judge said that might seem like something out of a spy novel, but he considered it a real possibility. The judge did note Teixeira's family ties and the the support he has from his parents, who were in the courtroom yesterday. Teixeira faces up to 25 years in prison if convicted. He hasn't yet entered a plea. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmanning. Rachel Rollins is now officially the former Massachusetts U.S. attorney. She submitted her resignation to the White House late yesterday. Rollins stepped down after two federal investigations faulted her for multiple ethics violations. Tonight, Taylor Swift continues her weekend performances at Gillette Stadium. Fans say Swift delivered in her opening show. Gabriella Calderon of Fall River said she could not wait for her musical idol to take the stage last night. I'm just really happy to be here. I'm very proud to have grown up with Taylor and her entire evolution through her eras, so it's just bananas to be here. Traffic heading to Foxborough was heavy yesterday, and the same is expected this afternoon. The Celtics lost Game 2 of the Eastern Conference Finals to the Heat at the Garden last night, 111-105. Miami now has a 2-0 lead in the best-of-seven series. It is 58 degrees in Boston with rain today, continuing tonight. Tomorrow, some sunshine, highs in the mid-70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty. On stage May 25th to June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Capital One with a Capital One Quicksilver card. Capital One is proud to support NPR Music and the Tiny Desk Contest. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thanks for being with us today. Negotiations on raising the nation's debt ceiling were off, then back on, then ended late last night with no resolution and concerns loom over the possibility that the U.S. will default on its debt. NPR senior editor and correspondent Ron Elvin joins us. Ron, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. These uh, debt ceiling talks are flickering off and on like a like a bad light switch. Um but can they drag on for much longer without becoming a real crisis, too? They cannot. This is the moment when the stuff gets real, Scott. The negotiators really wanted to have a deal this weekend, just to give the House time to assess it and argue and to put together the votes to pass it and do it next week in time to get it over to the Senate in a shape the Senate can accept without a long mm-hmm. Senate debate and do it all in time for Biden to sign it in the next 10 days to head off default, which apparently is coming right around the 1st of June when the cash is gone. So it's crunch time, and the players still seem to be posturing. And, of course, all this goes on while President Biden is in uh, Hiroshima for the G7 meeting. Uh, President Zelensky joined this morning in person. 
Yes, nothing like face-to-face when you are asking for the world. Uh, Zelensky's already had a sidebar with India's Prime Minister Modi today, talk about what uh, India might do for peace. Uh, He's there to find more support in a military sense, but also to look for peace solutions. He's asking the world's largest economies to give him even more help in his war effort against Putin's invasion. Uh, Biden approving today, apparently, having Ukraine's pilots train on F-16 fighter jets. Now, that's an American product, Mm -hmm. but the jets themselves would not be provided by the U.S., but rather by some of our allies. Yet the training, just the training, constitutes an escalation in the U.S. commitment. Of course, uh, Florida Governor DeSantis uh, reportedly on the verge of finally announcing his candidacy for president at the moment. Uh, he's in a public row with Disney, who says they uh, they will not build a new facility and move more personnel to Florida. Uh, Governor DeSantis is popular in Florida. Will the issues he's used to become popular there translate nationally? You know, that's really the audience that he's talking to right now. He's clearly moving into the final hours before he announces for president. The war on Disney may be making some conservative activists in early voting states happier with DeSantis because they see Disney as part of the Hollywood liberal consensus and besieging the Magic Kingdom helps DeSantis keep those loyalists loyal. But it also suggests, perhaps to a national audience, a lack of experience with bargaining and conflict resolution. And DeSantis seems to lack the gene for compromise, if you know what I mean. Uh, That may be a virtue on the highly partisan primary front, but it's not a big plus in a November general election. What about the role of uh, Florida Senator Rick Scott? Um, kind of inserted himself into the DeSantis Disney brawl, uh, calling for contemplation, cool heads prevail. Is this to help his reelection campaign? He is up for reelection. He would like to be helpful at the moment to both sides. It's to his advantage to have this peaceably resolved in favor of business as usual in Florida. And right now in Florida, you have DeSantis running for president. You've also got another Republican senator who recently ran for president, Mark Rubio, and he may want to run again. And then, of course, Republican Senator Scott, who ran and lost for party leader in the Senate, might clearly like to be president himself someday. We have to ask about uh, the health of Senator Dianne Feinstein. Um, Seems to be fresh concerned about her ability to carry out her elected duties. We were told just this week that her recent case of shingles triggered triggered also a bout with encephalitis, which is an inflammation of the brain, and also Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, which can cause paralysis of the facial muscles. People are talking about how she seems confused. Perhaps she's not aware of how long she's been gone. Truth is, we really don't know what command she has of her faculties at this point. She is the oldest member of the current Senate, about to turn 90 next month. Neither the Senate nor, for that matter, the Supreme Court has adequate or transparent rules in place to handle cases such as the ones they've been facing lately, whether or not to ask a member to leave or to expel a member. Ron Elving, thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. Greece votes tomorrow in what's being described as the most unpredictable election in years, three months after the country's deadliest train crash in which 57 people died, many of them students. Reporter Lydia Imanolidou joins us now from Athens. Lydia, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. How does this train crash become an issue in the election? 
Well, the, the political backlash after the train crash in late February was massive. It sparked huge protests, as you said, especially among young people. But really, across the board, there was so much outrage among Greeks who blamed the country's political establishment for the safety failures that led to the accident. Uh, people called on the Greek prime minister, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, to resign. He did not. He's running for re-election. Uh, his conservative New Democracy Party, though, did see its lead in the polls narrow. And the left-wing opposition party, Syriza, which is headed by the former Greek Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras, is trailing only a few points uh, behind. And then there are some smaller parties on the far right and the far left that have gained some ground. This, coupled with new election rules this year, means that there's probably not going to be an outright winner in this round of elections. A second round is preliminarily penciled in for July. Mm-hmm. Greece, of course, was at the center of the Eurozone economic crisis uh, 14 years ago. Uh, the economy is better now. How much are economic issues at the center of these elections? Yeah, well, inflation and the economy are the top concerns for people in this country, according to polls. Many Greeks are not able to keep up with soaring food costs and with energy bills that skyrocketed uh, after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, And according to official figures, a a good portion of Greeks uh, are at risk of poverty. Greece's economy, though, has come a long way over the past decade, and the Greek prime minister can take some credit for that. Um, He's brought in foreign investment, cut corporate taxes, and we've seen unemployment rates dropping, GDP growing, and the minimum wage, and pensions. And the prime minister says that if he's re-elected, there's more economic growth on the way. Given all this measurable progress, why are the elections so close? Well, even though there has been economic progress, the prime minister's critics say there's also been um, some backsliding, that there are some issues that threaten the rule of law. One issue is this long-brewing spying scandal that the prime minister has been at the center of. He and his government are accused of using spyware to monitor journalists and political opponents. Also, media freedom in the country has declined, according to monitoring groups. In fact, the annual index by the nonprofit Reporters Without Borders, uh, it ranks Greece dead last in the EU for media freedom. And finally, this administration is accused of illegal and violent returns of migrants who tried to cross into Greece through neighboring Turkey. The government has long denied so-called pushbacks, but evidence that they're happening systematically is mounting. Now, I can't say whether the prime minister's party will lose votes over these issues. It's possible that the hardline policies at the border, for example, will actually win over some voters on the right. But this is the cloud of issues hanging over this election less than a day before polls open here in Greece. Lydia Emanolidou in Athens, thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. Stars can be glimpsed in such unexpected places. Chunkasaurus was at rest on a pile of rotting river pylons and rusty chains along the Chicago River just below Division Street. Early last weekend when Joey Santori and Al Scorch captured their image on video. Look at the size of that effing thing, Joey Santori announced, and uh, he didn't say effing. Oh my God, it's a massive turtle. Is that a snapper? He's a snapper. Al Scorch added, civic pride suffusing his voice, it's a Chicago River snapper. The video they posted on YouTube in which they dubbed the snapper Chonkasaurus has reached hundreds of thousands of viewers, including me, who shortened the turtle's name to Chonk. There's even merch, T-shirts and sweatshirts emblazoned with Chonk's sturdy frame. 
The turtle looks broad and strong as if embodying the spirit of the concrete city that booms above their river perch. Snapping turtles can weigh up to 75 pounds, and Chonk's steady girth seems to be part of what has endeared them to so many. Think of Chonk as being in rhyme with Carl Sandburg's poem Chicago, stormy, husky, brawling turtle of the big shoulders. Put a Chicago Bears jersey on Chonk and they could be a middle linebacker. In times beset with much disparity news, there's something encouraging in Chonk's robust appearance on a bed of rusted chains. The Chicago River was an industrial dumping ground for decades. It caught on fire several times. Fires, you may recall, have an especially harrowing history in Chicago. But 70% of the water in the river now comes directly from wastewater treatment plants. Officials still don't recommend you take a river swim, but Margaret Frisbee of Friends of the Chicago River, who organize groups to pick up litter and help look after wildlife, says the river is the cleanest today that it's been in 150 years. Joey Santori tweeted when he posted his video of Chunk, Great to see this beast thriving here in what was once such a toxic river, but is slowly getting cleaned up and restored. If you ever despair about the possibility of progress, you might want to think of Chunk the Snapper, flopped out and sunning on a berth of greenish old pylons as boats pull past and the city rises around them. A river once described as a wave of poo is now healthy enough to be a home. And you're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Thanks for joining 90.9 WBUR. It's 818, and coming up in about 20 minutes, you'll hear that a North Carolina court's unusual ruling highlights the fact that some states allow voting districts to be drawn in ways that favor one political party. And keep in mind, wherever you are, you can follow the news with the new WBUR app, tap and listen when and how you want, download it or update it in your app store now. It's 59 degrees in Boston, with rain on the way this afternoon and tonight. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, empower a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. And Red Fire Farm, a family farm offering organic vegetables, fruit, and cheese, as well as flowers, and pick your own. More details at redfirefarm.com. I'm Luis Schiavone with these headlines. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is now in Japan for diplomatic talks with the leaders of the world's most powerful democracies. Member nations are moving to tighten sanctions against Russia over the 15-month invasion of Ukraine. Despite a brief stop in negotiations yesterday, President Biden says he's still confident he will reach a deal with House Republicans to avoid a default on the U.S. national debt. Clashes continue in Sudan as the week came to a close, even as the country's army chief made changes to the country's ruling sovereign council. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. 
Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Staples, with supplies to get business done, no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. And from Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Brooke Kroger says her new book makes no claim to be an all-inclusive, but a rich torrent of names, stories, and history follows. Ida B. Wells, Nellie Bly, Martha Gellhorn, Rachel Carson, Joan Didion, Gloria Steinem, and many, many more women who have enriched and changed American journalism, including, it must be added, the NPR founding mother quartet of Cookie Roberts, Nina Totenberg, Linda Wertheimer, and Susan Stamberg. Undaunted is the name of the new book by Brooke Kroger, Professor Emerita at NYU and formerly an honored reporter for Newsday, who joins us from New York City. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, really. What are some of the most absurd, obnoxious reasons male editors, executives, and owners said were why women were ill-suited for journalism? Um, there were many reasons. A congenital inaccuracy, this was a big one, that women were literally incapable of being accurate. There was a lot of objection to, especially in the Victorian years, having an escort, which many women needed for their safety, or the editors felt they needed it for their safety or their reputations. They couldn't send mm -hmm. them out on night assignments and on and on. There's so many names and rich stories in this book, uh, so obviously we can we can just make room for a few today, but let me begin. Ida B. Wells. The princess of the press, as they called her. She took on lynching. She faced bombing. She, she even reported stories critical of her publisher. What a genuine hero. Uh, yeah, she was really remarkable and early. They were sort of unspoken subjects in the mainstream press that she had no problem discussing. And she used, you know, a database technique. She cataloged all of the episodes across the country. Both she and Ida Tarbell were really ahead of the curve on doing that. And so that's, you know, change in journalism. They really modeled how to go about doing work that's verifiable. Ida Tarbell took on Standard Oil. That couldn't be easy. So she came out of Western Pennsylvania. Her father was an oiler, and the subject was very close to her because she watched the way the monopolistic practices hurt local oil men and really put Standard Oil under cloud. It's interesting when the stories finally run, I think it's 1902, don't hold me to that, there's a five-page intro explaining how she went about it, which is fascinating in itself. You talk about many women who have covered wars in this book, and I, I've, I've got to tell you, one I admire especially is Martha Gellhorn. Not just a great war correspondent, which would be enough. A great writer would go on to write novels, a figure in history. I'm not even going to mention to whom she was married. but I uh, think she'd appreciate that. <laughs> uh, that. That's why I don't do it. I, I want to read something she wrote, Collier's Magazine. Uh, June 23, 1945. This is at the liberation of Dachau. 
we are not entirely guiltless, we allies, because it took us 12 years to open the gates of Dachau. We were blind and unbelieving and slow, and that we can never be again. We must know now that there can never be peace if there is cruelty like this in the world. You know, her reporting on these themes really goes back to the Depression years when she worked for FERA and was one of the people in that era going around the country to observe what the what the impact of the depression was on everyday people. And so she really had already started to hone those techniques. And then very soon after that, she's in Spain for the Spanish Civil War, and then on to Europe, to Czechoslovakia, through the whole North, and just documenting the rise of Hitler. Remarkable. With the revelations of what we now call Me Too cases um, been possible without women in journalism. And of course, we, we mentioned the names of Jody Cantor and Megan Tuohy and more, including women news executives. I think what's interesting about Me Too, I mean, all this material of the 2000s on is an epilogue because I don't think it's ripe for analysis yet. But one thing that's clear, you know, the Me Too movement, the men who got caught in that web have not returned from grace. So there's a staying power to that. And then I started to wonder, you know, with all this violence we're seeing towards women journalists that is so mm -hmm. pronounced online and moving into offline from online, that's really horrific. You wonder if this isn't like, what, what would be the reason for that in 2023? Like why, I mean, okay, journalists, I get that, but why women? Why women particularly? And maybe it's part of that backlash. One of the patterns that the book explains you know, ad nauseum, but that's just the way it is, is progress, setback, push, pull. I mean, that happens from 1840 to today. Yeah. And we see that through these horrific episodes. I feel moved to ask you about Gloria Steinem. So Gloria Steinem is not a big figure in this book because she was a journalist for a short time before she moved into full dress activism. Yeah, but she got maximum impact, didn't she? She sure did. And can I tell you a story that's not in the book? Please, yes. So um, when Barbara Walters died in late December, I was in the third edit and was able to at least get a line in to note the outpouring of women journalists mm -hmm. at her passing, which, you know, was interesting. But in the stuff that came out during that time, NBC ran a clip that I didn't know about of her as a Playboy bunny. And I've done earlier work on undercover reporting, so I was very familiar with Gloria Steinem's undercover mm -hmm. reporting on the Playboy Club. So putting together the timeline, I could see that the Walters piece came out just within weeks of the Playboy Club opening in New York. So she gets the assignment to be a bunny at the Playboy Club for a day. So her story just goes into, she looks great in the costume, she shows us how to do the bunny dip. She tells us about the matron and blah, blah, blah. Back and forth with Hugh Downs, where he comments on the costume. She does give him the side eye and then talks about how moral these clubs are and that they're getting a bad rap, etc. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that Gloria Steinem reported her undercover piece exposing questionable treatment of women in this yeah. construct just six weeks later. She's reporting it as the feminine mystique is being published by Betty Friedan. And then the Equal Pay Act passes. 
you know, it's almost like when Virginia Woolf talks about 1910 as the time that modernism happened and the entire world changed. This is one of those moments where the world changed, where you would look at this Playboy Club situation in an entirely different way. In Gloria Steinem's memoir, she says that for a long time she hated having done that piece because it brought no good assignments. People just wanted her to do more and more prurient things. But she yeah. said in time, she got to understand that that piece has outlasted the Playboy clubs and she was able yeah. to change their practices toward examining the women and such as that. For Kroger's new book, Undaunted, How American Women Changed Journalism. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, really. Chicago is mourning the death of police officer Ariana Preston. It's not that she was just bright and talented, but a very compassionate human being. Ariana knew that laying her life down, even for those who do not always value life, that is the exemplary example of righteousness. Mayor Brandon Johnson was among hundreds of Chicagoans who attended Ariana Preston's funeral this week. Ariana Preston was shot and killed as she returned home from her shift in uniform two weeks ago. Four teens have since been charged with her murder. Ariana Preston was 24 years old. Dion Moon, the mother of Ariana Preston, joins us now. Mrs. Moon, thank you so much for making the time for us. You're welcome. What would you like people to know about, uh, about your daughter, Ariana? I would like the world to know that she was a shining star, educated, well-rounded, happy. She was in school, wasn't she? Yes, she was. She was going to graduate from um, Leone University Law School this week. What did she hope to go on to do? Uh, she wanted to be part of the FBI, but um, of course she wanted to do background and get more on hands with the job with joining the Chicago Police Department. Why did she want to become a Chicago police officer? She wanted to make a change in the world. She was really big on change and just being great, making an impact. Yeah. I gather your daughter was five foot three, right? Yes. Very <laughs> small in weight and in height. Very small. But big heart, right? Absolutely. She would give anybody her last and try to figure out the rest for herself. So uh, extremely big heart. Mrs. Moon, um, when Ariana said, I want to be a police officer, did you worry? I did worry. I often worried um, because I knew that she was not a kid that was familiar with um, the activities that were happening in the streets. Um, that's why I was... Also, even though when she became a police officer, I was in constant contact with her. Um, every night she um, was in the streets, I would call and check on her and she would, or text her and she would say, oh, I'm okay, Ma. Mm -hmm. <sighs> a lot of police officers have, um, like your daughter, given their lives in the line of duty this year. Yes, she's a 600. 
How do we handle that? What do we tell ourselves? It takes more than politicians to gain some type of sanity in this crazy world. It's just not all of them. It has to start at home with the parents and guidance. How are you and your husband doing? Oh, we're up and down. Mm -hmm. I'm probably more down than him, but we're we're both up and down, and we're just trying to trying to make it to the next day every day. Gather a lot of people have been telling you how much uh, they loved your daughter, haven't they? Yes, yes. So many people, the strangers. They hope um, their daughters are like them when they when she grows up. Um, they say that me and my husband did a fantastic job. Well, everything I've I've read and seen, it sounds like you really did. I've got to ask you a really difficult question. Mm -hmm. For teenagers have been charged with your daughter's murder. Yes. Two 19-year-olds, 18-year-old, 16-year-old. What thoughts do you have for them? Um, first and foremost, I pray for them, but also with my prayer is that they never see daylight. I'll never be able to see my baby again. <laughs> She'll stay with you, you know. She'll she'll be with you in memories and recollections, and some of that'll be hard, but a lot of it'll be wonderful too. We do have some great memories. Just that she was an amazing kid that had a great future ahead of herself, and and me and my family were robbed of that. <laughs> I uh, I can't thank you enough for making time to speak with us. In a, in a way, you know, I think everything that you that you say and tell us is a way of helping people remember your daughter, and that's important. Thank you. You're welcome. We spoke with Dion Moon, uh, the mother of slain Chicago police officer Ariana Preston, on Friday. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. A recent ruling by a North Carolina court has put a spotlight on this fact about U.S. democracy. Some states allow voting districts to be drawn in ways that make elections less competitive and deliver a victory for one political party. This practice is known as partisan gerrymandering, and there are legal battles being fought in state after state. NPR's Hansi Lo Wong explains. When there's an election in your voting district, which political party is more likely to win? The answer can be set when the borders of your district are redrawn after a census. That's because, says Kathy Fung of the advocacy group Common Cause, when we're talking about partisan gerrymandering, what's at stake is... Whether people who go to the ballot box are casting a ballot where there are actual choices, or if the outcome is already rigged. That's why Fung's group was part of a major lawsuit that went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. 
It was called Rucho versus Common Cause. For several decades, people in the states had held out hope that the Supreme Court would lay down a standard for finding that partisan gerrymandering had happened. But in 2019, Chief Justice John Roberts announced the ruling by the court's conservative majority. We conclude that partisan gerrymandering claims present political questions beyond the reach of the federal courts. The high court punted the issue to the states. After the Rucho decision, people asked me whether I was depressed or not. And I said, no, disappointed, but not depressed. Michael Lee is an attorney at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU's law school, who points to efforts to fight off partisan gerrymandering at the state level. There are independent redistricting commissions that are replacing politicians and state laws that ban favoring a political party when redistricting. It's all part of a patchwork of policies that determine how much partisan politics can drive the redrawing of voting maps. While you might be able to partisan gerrymander to your heart's content in Texas, you can't in New York, and that's a very uneven playing field. That field was put in the spotlight by a recent unusual ruling by the North Carolina Supreme Court. After last year's midterm elections, Republican justices took over that state court's majority from Democrats. And last month, the new Republican majority reversed the court's earlier decision that found partisan gerrymandering violates North Carolina's Constitution. The facts didn't change. And the only thing that did change was an election which changed who was in control of the court. Theodore Shaw, a law professor at the University of North Carolina, says it can be hard to break the grip of partisan gerrymandering on democracy in this country. Because the point is to put one party in control of drawing maps in a way that leaves very little opportunity for political change. One potential change could come from the U.S. Supreme Court. The justices are weighing a case that could prevent any state court from reviewing a congressional map approved by state lawmakers. Jonathan Service, a redistricting expert at Carnegie Mellon University, is concerned that justices could end up leaving few solutions to protect voters. They cited different states' ability to use state courts to police partisan gerrymandering. Now this case comes along and threatens the very mechanism that the court has explicitly said is available. That case may end up getting thrown out soon, but the U.S. Supreme Court could decide to pick up a similar redistricting case out of Ohio. Service points out there's also Congress, which could pass a law that limits partisan gerrymandering. And in the meantime, it depends on where you live. And it depends on whether the state court where you live is willing to protect your rights. Hansi Luong, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Massachusetts has a new acting U.S. attorney. First assistant U.S. attorney Joshua Levy's on the job. Rachel Rollins submitted her resignation as U.S. attorney to the White House late yesterday after two federal investigations released this week faulted her for multiple ethics violations. In Hull, newly elected officials cannot take office while a legal dispute plays out over Monday's results. On Election Day, a fire temporarily prevented people from reaching the town's only polling place. A Hull ordered two extended hours for voting, and during that time, 80 ballots were cast. A Superior Court judge then declared that the election is not valid and recommended a new election. The town of Hull says it is weighing its legal options. 
It's 59 degrees in Boston with highs in the mid-60s today. Rain expected to start this afternoon will continue tonight. Tomorrow, partly sunny, highs in the mid-70s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. Innuendo's Hunter Douglas Energy Smart Style Event, window fashions designed to increase energy efficiency, Hunter Douglas at Innuendo and Natick and Innuendo.com. And Museum of Science. There's always something new. Visit the latest traveling exhibit, Mazes and Brain Games, and prepare to be amazed. Tickets at MOS.org. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with the Morning Edition. Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR. You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into all things considered. It can be turned into Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The sermons Joshua Gagnon delivered each Sunday were different from what you might hear at most New Hampshire churches. They were often funny, earthy, and those sermons helped increase his congregation until it became one of the largest in the state, a state that's not often thought of as a center of religious fervor. Then this year it all fell apart. New Hampshire Public Radio's Todd Bookman has the story. What's going on, Next Level Church? Let's get loud across all of our locations. It's a typical Sunday at Next Level. Joshua Gagnon preaches in front of a live congregation at one church, and it's streamed almost like a movie onto big screens in other Next Level Church locations. That's pretty exciting for me because I never wanted to pastor a big church. I wanted to pastor a healthy church. And it's exciting to watch us become more and more healthy. At Next Level Church, services are called experiences, sermons, messages. Pastor Josh is dressed in his Sunday best, skinny jeans, T-shirt. Sometimes he wears a baseball cap. Oh, God. I got a question for you as we start today. I'm going to need somebody to help me out. Um, could anybody use $100? Anybody could use $100? Pastor Josh pulls a wad of cash from his pocket and gives it to a guy in the front row. Then he turns to Scripture. Jesus talks about money. And Jesus says you can't be a fan of money and a follower of me. You can't. It's impossible. It's like being a Yankees fan in a Red Sox fan at once. It can't happen. Josh Gagnon was something of an outlier in New England. In survey after survey, the region ranks last in terms of religious participation. And yet, with his ambition, Gagnon launched a successful megachurch here. He started Next Level in 2008, renting out a local school auditorium. He then moved on to renting out movie theaters before the church built its own headquarters in the town of Summersworth. I loved, like, everything about it. I loved going to church. This is Serena Barubi, who started attending Next Level in 2016. Next Level billed itself as non-denominational. Its focus was on the biblical teachings of Jesus. Barubi had attended other Christian churches, 
But none of them had what Pastor Josh had. I mean, he managed to have a church that had energy and had youthfulness and had, you know, a lot of things that people would be, you know, attracted to. Next Level opened satellite locations across New Hampshire, in Maine, in Massachusetts, upstate New York, even Florida. To fund its growth, the church put a heavy emphasis on tithing, giving 10% of your income. Everyone understands that God doesn't pay the electric bills. This is Erin Nolan, who attended with her family for a little over a year. She said the church made it easy to give. There was a QR code and a bucket passed around. And it was brought up at least three or four times every single service. In 2020, Next Level published an annual report showing that it had collected more than $3.3 million. That's 65000 each Sunday. Again, a rarity in New England, where the majority of churches are sleepier and struggling to hold on to members. Next Level actually began acquiring or merging with struggling churches. Warren Smith, the executive director of Ministry Watch, a kind of accountability outlet in the Christian ministry world, said that acquisition model is happening nationwide. It has become increasingly common over the last five or ten years that a dying church will give their assets to a rising church, to a new church plant. But as the church was growing, there's evidence that Gagnon himself was benefiting. Earlier this year, a Christian media website detailed a questionable real estate transaction. Next Level, the church, sold a residential property it owned to Gagnon and his wife for half of what it paid. Then, two and a half years later, Gagnon flipped the house for nearly a million dollars. And recently, other allegations about Pastor Josh started to surface. Things happen gradually and then suddenly, right? Wham! So this is something that I think was building up over time. This is Jesse Davies, a former member of the church. He wound up coordinating a Facebook page that detailed stories from people who were closely with Pastor Josh, stories of bullying and cruel pranks. One former employee, Chris Boardman, a pastor who led one of the satellite churches, talked about the pressure he was under. I would get reprimanded or scolded if we weren't beating our, our numbers week over week. The fact that I even had to count how many people came on a Sunday, are you freaking kidding me? Like, that that just made me want to throw up. Gagnon didn't respond to an interview request. He also ignored a list of questions mailed to his homes in New Hampshire and Florida. In early February, the church announced Gagnon had stepped down. A few weeks later, one of the remaining local pastors, Shane Beckton, posted a video announcing Next Level Church was shutting its doors. This might feel like a key part of your lives have been ripped away as well. The New Hampshire Attorney General's office says it's now looking into the matter. Serena Barubi, who found her spiritual home at Next Level, has joined a new church. But she says the allegations and the suddenness of it all will leave a bruise. I really feel for all the people that were, were hurt by the church. And those people that had believed or really, you know, were growing in community and they have turned away and they might not come back to a church. And that's a shame. That's really sad. In Pastor Josh, churchgoers found an inspiration, a guide to Christian life. In the end, though, many are left still searching. For NPR News, I'm Todd Bookman in New Hampshire. Tax incentives and favorable currency exchange that have lured filmmakers to Canada for years are now drawing them south to Mexico. Feature films, Super Bowl commercials, all being shot on sets in Mexico. Her permits are easy, U.S. dollars go far, and the talent pool is growing and not unionized tomorrow. On Weekend Edition Sunday with Aisha here, what the draw to Mexico means for American film workers who now face competition. 
from the South. You can listen on your phone or your computer or just turn on the radio. For millions, Marty Stewart is the very image of country music. Splendid jackets, big hair, musical mastery. And his respect for country's traditions and a good jolt of humor, often at his own expense. I was raised by alligators in the Pearl River swamp. Started out dancing on a boogie woogie stump. Stump fell in, went to the bottom. Fist said, boys, smoke them if you got them. Ain't that strange? It's a mystery. Ah, that's Marty Stewart. He started his career at the age of 12. Now, five decades later, Marty Stewart has won Grammys. He's in the Grand Old Opry and the Country Music Hall of Fame. All I need is a motor in my car. Bring it up, hit the road, be a country star. He and his band, the Fabulous Superlatives, have just released Altitude. It's their first new album in six years. Marty Stewart joins us. Thank you so much for being with us. So great to have you. My pleasure, Scott Simon. I, I got to clarify something for the NPR audience. You you actually were not raised by alligators in the Pearl River Swamp, right? <laughs> well, maybe that might be a stretch. How'd you begin to uh, perform at the age of 12? I, I think I was I was a natural-born ham. I wanted on a stage, just anything to do with a bright light and a stage. I wanted to be a part of it. I started my first band when I was nine. And what was happening in that part of the country is that the music I was hearing was mostly music of the British invasion, you know, by local pickers and local bands. But nobody seemed to be playing country music. And me and my little neighborhood band, we took off and started playing country music. And that was, I felt like, I, it, the noble thing to do. And it felt good to my heart. Yeah. How did, uh, how did Lester Flats come into your life? The first two records I ever owned in my life was the fabulous Johnny Cash and Flat and Scruggs' greatest hits. And oddly enough, the only two jobs I ever had as a working musician was with Johnny Cash and Lester Flatt. <laughs> Lester, I met when I was 12 years old on on, on yeah. the Bluegrass Festival circuit, just as a fan. And he had uh, a fellow that played in his band named Roland White who invited me to come and just ride along with the band for a weekend, which I did, begged my parents to let me go do. Wow. Labor Day weekend, 1972, and over the course of the weekend, Lester heard me play and offered me a job in his band. Sparkles like a diamond when the sun goes down. Nighttime is the right time in this desert town. Ooh, Vegas. Judging by the lyrics on, on this album and maybe some others, you... You seem to write a lot on the road. I wonder if being on the road helps you look back at other places with a special kind of understanding. The road is my office. And riding through America, one of the greatest analogies I ever heard mm -hmm. came from Pete Seeger. I, I met Pete Seeger at Jazz Fest in New Orleans, probably in 1978 or 79. Had a wonderful conversation with him and I was determined not to bug him about Woody Guthrie, but I had to ask one question. And I asked him about Woody, and Pete gave me the most beautiful answer. He said, Woody was like a traveling correspondent that rode on a boxcar through the world and looking to the right and looking to the left and reporting on the human condition. 
I thought that was a very eloquent answer. A nice way to, to live a musical life is to report on what you see. That's a troubadour's job. Do you think country music gives voice to people, well, of all kinds, but particularly people whose, whose stories need to be heard? When it does its job properly. There's a lot of different denominations of country music. There's a lot of different tributaries of country music. It was kind of designed all the way back at the very beginning of the downbeat of the commercial country industry. Back in, you know, July of 1927, when Ralph Peer discovered and recorded the Carter family and Jimmy Rogers and Pop Stoneman to call the Bristol Sessions, the Big Bang, as it was called. The country music industry took flight right there. And country music was designed for gospel songs and bluegrass songs and pop songs and honky-tonk songs, just songs of life. But as time has gone on, country music is a big pop star now. It's a global entity. But down at the heart and soul, you'll find songs that speak the stories. And that is my favorite kind of country music, the songs that tell the stories. Do you get tired of being told the facts when you know they're not real? Do you get a little mad when somebody you don't know tells you how you're supposed to feel? Do you know about the world wearing you down and you still get left behind? talking about your friend of mine tell us about song friend of mine i gotta tell you that song really hit me in the uh, in the solar plexus because one thing i i worry about in the job we do here in broadcast journalism was your lyric you get a little mad when somebody you don't know tells you how you're supposed to feel i think in in, in such an age of social media everybody has an opinion and it's confusing to know where you know the center of the line is sometimes. But a friend of mine, it goes back to what you just said previously about telling everybody's stories. I read a beautiful quote by Aretha Franklin one time. She said, when I sing a new song, I close my eyes and stick out my hand and hope somebody takes it. And I think a friend of mine is a series of questions to the audience. Do you relate to this? Do you understand what I'm saying here? Well, if you do, you know, we're on the same page here. It's basic humanity. I understand you are a devoted collector of country music memorabilia. Oh, and have the insurance bill to prove it. <laughs> well, what, what have you got, may I ask? There's about 20,000 pieces in the collection. Um, right off the top of my head, Johnny Cash's first black performance suit. The boots mm. Patsy Cline was wearing when she lost her life. On and on and on. Is there anything you uh, you really hanker to get hold of but haven't been able to find? Honestly, the last thing I was looking for was an autographed 8x10 picture of Jimmy Rogers, the father of country music. And it eluded me for years and years and years. And last year, a friend of mine bought a Jimmy Rogers fan scrapbook and it had two 8x10 autographed pictures of Jimmy Rogers along with his business card, personal photographs from the family. So I got my wish, and I couldn't believe it, but I was proud to get that. 
Tell us about your song, Altitude. I went around running my mouth that the most outlaw thing you can do in Nashville, Tennessee these days is to play country music. <laughs> and so Altitude came along and I thought, well, this is a job for a steel guitar and uh, twin fiddles and put it back in the framework of the classic country sound. And so, so I, I kind of did that just to back up my, my smart mouth. Is it good to be back on the road? I can tell you, Scott, when we finally got to go back to work, and I walked out there at Soundcheck, and, and the bleachers, yeah, you know, was empty, but the crew was there, and everybody was just kind of tiptoeing back into the water. And I remember looking at those bleachers going, I will never take this for granted again as long as I live. And I haven't. I haven't. I've waited a lifetime to get to go and see. The great Marty Stewart, his new album with the fabulous superlatives, is Altitude. Thank you so much for being with us. My honor. Thank you for having me on your show. A land beyond the sun, known as Dang, I liked him. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple. In stores or delivered from HintWater.com. This is NPR. Funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums. Open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries, free Sundays, and museums at night events. HarvardArtMuseums.org. Soaring Hawk Meditation Center. Celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness. Located in Littleton, Mass. More at SoaringHawkCenter.com. And the Masters in Applied Economics at Boston College. Providing an industry-aligned curriculum on campus, online or hybrid bc.edu slash msae on last week's wait wait alonzo bowden was skeptical of the new rules forcing airlines to treat people better i travel a ton being a stand-up comic and um, i have platinum status with the airlines and they treat me horribly. I don't know what they're doing to Group 5. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagel. Your first-class ticket to this week's Wait, Wait comes with a gourmet meal, assuming you're a gourmet cook. Join us for a staycation with the News Quiz from NPR. Today at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 
92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, President Biden at the G7 in Hiroshima. Later, why would a Russian military contractor publicly complain about the Russian military in Bakhmut? Ron DeSantis posed to announce his run for president. Will his Florida issues be popular across the country? Then, nationalism in Turkey's elections, and Sigourney Weaver, who's played super and mortal heroes who happen to be women. I am reflecting what I see. I'm not trying to make a hero out of a normal woman, but I do find women heroic. Her new film, Master Gardener, first our newscast at Saturday, May 20, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has arrived in Hiroshima, Japan, to make an in-person appearance at the G7 summit. The leaders of the world's most advanced democracies will focus on Ukraine and Russia's invasion in their Sunday deliberations. NPR's Scott Detrow reports that ahead of that, Zelensky has received news about something he's been asking for for more than a year. In a major shift, Biden has indicated at the summit that he's open to countries giving F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan says the U.S. and other Western allies have previously extracted promises from Ukraine not to use the high-powered weapons they're sharing to attack inside Russia. And the Ukrainians have consistently indicated that they are prepared to follow through on that. And in fact, we have seen them follow through on that with uh, the provision of Western equipment um, when we have given it to them. Sullivan says a one-on-one meeting between Biden and Zelensky is likely. Scott Detrow, NPR News, Hiroshima, Japan. Washington's debt ceiling negotiations have yet to yield a resolution, with talks between the White House and House Republicans breaking off late Friday night. GOP Congressman Garrett Graves told reporters with the deadline fast approaching, the outcome of talks and time for a June 1st deadline is uncertain. We re-engaged, had a very, very candid discussion, uh, talking about where we are talking about um, where things need to be, what's reasonable and acceptable. Negotiators are racing to strike a deal as the nation moves closer to a potentially catastrophic debt default if the nation fails to pay its bills. A top Biden advisor says the White House remains hopeful talks are likely to resume over the weekend. On Wall Street at week's end, stocks slipped amid worries about a potential default. There was encouraging news for traders, though, as comments from Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell appeared to signal an end to interest rate hikes as soon as next month. The Fed began raising its key rate 14 months ago to fight high inflation. Steve Beckner has details. Inflation is running far above the Fed's 2% target, and Powell says he and his fellow monetary policymakers are strongly committed to reducing it. But that doesn't necessarily mean the Fed will hike the federal funds rate again at its mid-June meeting after raising that key short-term rate five percentage points over the past year. 
In addition to the Fed's monetary tightening, a series of bank failures has caused a further tightening of credit as banks restrain their lending. So Powell says the Fed's policy rate may not need to rise as much as it would have otherwise. For NPR News, I am Steve Beckner. The Dow Friday lost 109 points. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of leaking top-secret intelligence will remain in custody while he awaits trial. At Jack Teixeira's detention hearing in Worcester yesterday, the federal judge said the 21-year-old from Dighton was cavalier when he posted classified documents online. The judge said he agrees with prosecutors' suggestion that if Teixeira were out on bail, then it's possible a foreign government could help the defendant flee. Newly elected officials in Hull are unable to take office while a legal dispute plays out over Monday's election results. Eighty ballots are in question because they were cast in the extended two hours of voting allowed by the town after a fire temporarily prevented voters from reaching Hull's one polling place. A Brockton Superior Court judge denied the town's emergency request to extend voting and is suggesting that Hull hold a new election. Secretary of State Bill Galvin says he does not think that's necessary. We hope the 80 people who were afforded the opportunity to vote with the additional hours will be counted. And we hope that if there are unrelating issues, that they'll be dealt with through the usual process of recounting and reviewing the ballots that were cast. The town of Hull says it is weighing its legal options. Several local colleges are holding their commencements today. They include Wellesley College, Wheaton College, Bentley University, Fitchburg State, and Bristol Community College. The Celtics are staring at a 2-0 deficit in the Eastern Conference Finals. Miami beat Boston last night 111-105 at the Garden. Jalen Brown of the Celtics admits the team was outplayed by the Heat, especially at the end of the game. They found a way to make plays down the stretch, and we didn't. We just got to stay poised. I think we get sped up at times. But on those moments, we got to, you know, come alive. And it seems like we, we let the game slip away from us. The next two games are in Miami. The series continues tomorrow night. It is 59 degrees in Boston with rain on the way this afternoon and evening. WBUR supporters include BMW. You can experience the all-electric BMW iX with BMW performance, luxury, and technology featuring a go-anywhere range of up to 307 miles. Test drives are available at your local BMW center. And Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done, from ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thanks for joining us today. The G7 Summit of Leaders continues in Hiroshima, Japan. So far, they have mostly focused on Russia's war on Ukraine. President Biden and other leaders are opening the doors to providing fighter jets to Ukraine. And after much intrigue, Ukraine's President Zelensky arrived in Hiroshima today to attend the summit in person. At the same time, debt sailing talks in Washington, D.C. stumbled yesterday. President Biden has weighed in. NPR White House correspondent Scott Detrow joins us from Hiroshima. Scott, thanks for being with us. Hey, good evening, Scott. How are you? Fine, thank you. There were That's right, it's evening there, morning here, my friend. Um, Vladimir Zelensky's trip to Japan. 
uh, brooded about, reported online, but now he's actually there, I gather. He is. He arrived today, and, and this comes right in the middle of an extended charm offensive from Zelensky, which is coming ahead of what we expect will be a major military offensive from Ukraine. Zelensky, remember, had not left the country much for obvious reasons for much of the first year of the war. Then he had that dramatic trip to Washington at the end of last year. And more recently, Zelensky has been visiting heads of government in several countries to pressure them to keep supporting Ukraine as military costs keep going up and as the war keeps dragging on. Uh, the trip to the G7 comes immediately after Zelensky made a similar case to the Arab League in Saudi Arabia the other day. We do not know much about his exact agenda here in Hiroshima, though the White House is indicating he will almost certainly have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with President Biden on Sunday. And I gather uh, there's a major welcoming gift in the offing. President Biden now indicates that he would support Ukraine acquiring F-16 fighter jets from Western countries. That's a change, isn't it? And, and it's a much larger gift than they had in the gift bags for the reporters covering this, this <laughs> summit. I mean, look, but on a serious note, this, this is a huge escalation in how the U.S. and its allies are arming Ukraine. Ukraine had been begging for these jets for more than a year. Biden resisted. He was worried that this could be something that would lead Russia to broaden the war and perhaps retaliate against other countries. But now, this week, Biden has told other G7 leaders the U.S. will support efforts to train Ukrainian pilots on F-16 fighter jets and begin conversations about how to get F-16s from other countries to Ukraine. And at a briefing today, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said the U.S. has adjusted its position based on how Russia has waged its war and how Ukraine has responded. He also told us that as the U.S. has increased the magnitude of the weapons it's providing, one key thing has been getting promises from Ukraine that it will not use them to attack inside Russia. And he indicated that that promise would be key when it comes to these F-16s. Chris, back at home, the president faces this growing crisis over the debt ceiling. Um, he apologized to Australia's prime minister for having to cancel his planned visit there uh, next week to get home sooner to deal with whatever's going on. And again, I truly apologize to you for uh, having you to come here rather than me being in Australia right now. Uh, but we have a little thing going on at home i got to pay attention to. Because in Washington, D.C., negotiations briefly stopped yesterday. They've resumed. What's the White House say, Scott? There were pretty big messages today, which was interesting. Right after that brief pause in negotiations, Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said, look, there are big differences. The talks may get difficult, but the White House is confident they can find an agreement. Then a few hours later, Communications Director Ben LeBolt issued a statement really blasting House Republicans, implying they are negotiating in bad faith. And then after that, President Biden was asked about this, and he said he is confident the U.S. will not default, and he indicated he thought negotiations were going pretty normally. This, this goes in stages. Mr. President, I've been in these negotiations before. Biden said he still believes the U.S. will avoid default, and he will be back late Sunday to rejoin talks in person. And one observation I had on this, the White House is doing a very strange dance here of continuing to insist it is not in negotiations over the debt ceiling, even as it negotiates over the debt ceiling. I mean, they're negotiating the budget here. But if the White House can't strike a deal to get the Republican-controlled House to raise the debt ceiling, the U.S. will run out of money and default on its debt. And Pierre Scott Detrow in Hiroshima. Thanks so much, Scott. And Scott, I have bad news. The Toyo Carp lost today, one to nothing. Oh, my gosh, my favorite team. Who beat him? Do you know? The, uh, the Hanshin Tigers. Oh, my gosh. All right. Thank you. Thank you. In every war, a place often comes to symbolize the brutality of the conflict. 
Stalingrad in the Second World War, Srebrenica in the former Yugoslavia. Today in Ukraine, it may be Bakhmut. For almost a year, Russian forces have been fighting to capture a small city in the east of the country. Russian losses are huge. It's estimated tens of thousands of people killed or injured, and yet they keep fighting. We're joined now by Phillips O'Brien, a professor of strategic studies at St. Andrews University in Scotland. Professor O'Brien, thanks so much for being with us. Glad to be here. The uh, most recent satellite images of Bakhmut are astonishing, the level of devastation. Why does Russia consider it such an important target? Well, I think we can all say it's all politics at this point, the two kinds of politics. I mean, Bakhmut has ceased to exist. They have destroyed a, a, a city, which by all reports was a, a very pleasant city and a location uh, for the making of um, Ukrainian sparkling wine and, and elements like that. But the Russians have leveled it because they wanted to take the physical area of Bakhmut. It has no strategic importance. There's no war industry there. And it seems to have been a completely political choice on two levels. One level is they just needed a victory that they had spent months going forward, months sending their army in this sort of winter, early spring offensive, and they hadn't taken anything of any note. But there was also, I think, politically, a competitive thing within the Russian system. So it was both the overall Russian need for a victory and yet also a competitive situation within the Russian fighting forces uh, to claim a victory. But that seems to have been it. What do you make of the the social media post of the head of the Wagner Group uh, saying that Moscow was not uh, giving him the weapons that he needed to win the city? By the way, the Russians have almost taken all of Bakhmut by now. It could be that 90% of the city or so is actually under Russian control. But even from the Russian point of view now, this looks, I think, like a, a pretty terrible thing that they've done with massive casualties and not achieving anything. And what Prigozhin seems to be doing is to try and say, this was not my fault. He is the head of the Wagner Group. He's the head of the Wagner Group. And so he's sort of in command of a, a, a special militia that doesn't come directly under army command, but is under the Russian government. And he's carved out a particular image of himself uh, particularly over the, the fighting of Bakhmut. Wagner was going to have a great success in Bakhmut. Now, the cost of taking Bakhmut has been so high uh, that he seems to be going on these rants and he videos himself and he goes on these rants attacking the army to try and say what had happened wasn't our fault, that what happened in Bakhmut was the fault of the army for not supporting us. So even if you look at, by the way, Russian TV reporting, they used to be making you know, great things about Bakhmut was about to fall, Bakhmut was about to fall. But even now within Russian TV and Russian propaganda, they're beginning to, to back off from that because it's no longer seen as sort of this thing that you could package as a great triumph. It's a little hard not to reflect on the fact that so many people have died for a city that has no particular, it has great human value, but no particular strategic importance. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's the insanity of war. And it's the insanity of Russian strategy, which still seems to have started this war with no idea of how to end it. And yet, instead of having the courage to say, we unleashed a catastrophe, let's try and get out of it, 
They seem to be willing to slaughter massive amounts of their own soldiers and kill many Ukrainians because they cannot admit that this war is a catastrophe. And what do you make of the Ukrainian defense of the city or attempted defense? It was a terrible choice that had to be made. Ukraine has one thing in its mind now, and that's preparing for the Ukrainian counteroffensive or offensive this spring or summer. They have been building up a large strike force with a lot of the new weaponry they were given at the end of the year and in January and February. They have been assembling a strike force, which is now going at some point to go into the offensive. What they needed to do was to, one, weaken the Russians as much as possible before they do that counteroffensive, and secondly, buy time to get that force ready. They calculated, I believe it was the right choice, that in fighting for Bakhmut, they could do both. They calculated correctly, the Russians were going to sort of expend whatever it took to take Bakhmut. Bakhmut had become politically so important that if you really wanted to, to weaken the Russians, you had to make them fight for every block. So that's why it's such a horrible battle, because they really did fight building to building. Recognizing that Ukrainians may not share their strategic plans with you, what do you deduce about where a new counteroffensive might occur? I wonder if it's not a case of where on the map, as in the Ukrainians are going to aim for a particular town, or they're going to aim for Mlitopol, as some have said, or Mariupol, or something like that. It might be a case of they're going to aim for first, where do they think the Russians are weakest? They would want to create a situation where they can punch a hole in the Russian lines, maybe, maybe cause a form of Russian collapse. So I wouldn't say that it's necessarily a place right now they know they want to take. It might be that this starts at a place where they think the Russians are weakest and they have the best chance to sort of break out and have a big hole. Phillips O'Brien, Professor of Strategic Studies, uh, St. Andrews University in Scotland. Thanks so much. Thank you. And you're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 918. Join us at City Space Tuesday, May 30th. The chefs and sisters Margaret Lee and Irene Lee discuss their new cookbook, Perfectly Good Food, a Totally Achievable Zero Waste Approach to Home Cooking. For tickets, go to WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England with their Zootopia Gala, June 10th supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos and their mission to inspire care and action for wildlife. ZooNewEngland.org. Walden Local Meat, supporting local food in our communities by hand-delivering local sustainable meat and seafood right to your door. WaldenLocalMeat.com. And Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. I'm Luis Schiavone with these headlines. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is now in Japan for diplomatic talks with leaders of the world's most advanced democracies. Member nations are moving to tighten sanctions against Russia. 
In a joint statement, the G7 nations meeting in Japan are calling on China to press Russia to end its war on Ukraine. The statement further declared opposition to the use of force against Taiwan. A federal judge in Boston has ruled that American Airlines and JetBlue may no longer act as partners when providing service to the Northeast U.S. The Justice Department had argued that lost competition would cost consumers hundreds of millions of dollars. I'm Luis Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs. From hydrangeas to lilacs to evergreens, the full collection is at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. From UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, is expected to finally make it official and enter the race for the Republican presidential nomination in the coming days. For months, his supporters have called him the party's best hope for winning the White House. While he's dodged questions about getting into the race, at the same time, He's made appearances in early voting states, including Iowa last weekend, and certainly sounded like a presidential candidate. Iowa's like the Florida of the Midwest, they said. But I just want to let you know, after watching all the good stuff you've done in Iowa, it may be that Florida's the Iowa of the Southeast, so we'll see. NPR's Greg Allen covers Governor DeSantis. He joins us now from Miami. Greg, thanks so much for being with us. Sure, Scott. What are the factors that uh, that lead us to conclude that he's close to announcing that he's running? Right. Well, we know that he's invited donors to a conference in Miami this upcoming week. Around that same time, a number of news organizations are reporting that he will officially declare his candidacy in papers filed with the Federal Elections Commission. And the word is that he'll have a big rollout of his campaign after Memorial Day in his hometown, Dunedin, Florida, up near Tampa. But all this is still very fluid because DeSantis likes to keep his plans and his schedule confidential. Among the laws he signed recently were measures allowing him to remain governor while running for president. Another one allows him to shield all of his travel from media and the public. Mm. Donald Trump has already given him a couple of nicknames. Might be a very disputatious uh, series of primaries. How do we think that Governor DeSantis will respond to some of these attacks? It's hard to say at, at this point. He's avoided taking Trump on directly as much as possible. As you know, DeSantis used to be very close to Trump. Trump's endorsement of DeSantis was a factor in uh, uh, the governor's election in 2018. After Trump left office, though, DeSantis stopped mentioning the former president pretty much. At the same time, he avoided saying when asked whether he believes Trump fairly lost the last election. So he's kind of hedged his bets there. DeSantis' strategy appears to be making the case that he, not Trump, represents the party's best chance to win in 2024. Here's what he had to say last week in Iowa. If we focus the election on the past or on other side issues, then I think the Democrats are going to beat us again. Uh, and I think it'll be very difficult to recover uh, from that defeat. You know, up to now, DeSantis has been one of the leading candidates in polls of Republican voters, along with uh, 
former President Trump. His numbers, though, have dropped, though, as he's taken attacks from Trump. And DeSantis has been working to present himself as a winner, someone who won re-election in Florida as governor by nearly 20 points, and who since then has pushed through a whole host of conservative policies here in Florida. What are some of those policies, and uh, how, how would they put themselves across in a national election? Well, we'll see about that. You know, he got a lot done in the recent legislative session, which just wrapped up. Many of the measures were controversial, uh, very much part of the culture wars. He signed a law banning abortions after six weeks. He's taken aim on issues involving race by banning programs promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion at public colleges and universities. He also signed a law allowing parents to challenge the types of books that are in school libraries. DeSantis says he believes teachers and schools have been using his word indoctrinating students. And so I expect all those issues to be part of his campaign pitch as he looks to a national audience. And of course, this week we've seen the latest in the ongoing feud with the, the Walt Disney Company. Uh, Disney canceled a big project that was underway there uh, in Florida. I gather thousands of jobs will be affected. How does this affect Governor DeSantis's presidential run? It certainly puts him out of step with traditional Republican policies, which is, you know, to support businesses small and large. But that dispute with uh, Disney began after the company opposed a law he signed banning discussions of gender identity and sexual orientation in the schools. DeSantis became angry at that and pushed for a law that he signed that stripped the company of its self-governing authority over its Florida properties. Uh, Disney now is suing DeSantis, saying he retaliated against the company for exercising its free speech. But DeSantis isn't backing away from the fight. Uh, he uses the word woke to describe the things he doesn't like about what's happening in Florida and America. And the battle against Disney and other corporations that he calls woke will likely be part of his national campaign. And here's Greg Allen in Miami. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Voters in Turkey will cast ballots again in just over a week for president after neither the incumbent President Erdogan nor his challenger, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu secured enough votes for a win in the first round. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports that conservative nationalist rhetoric has played a significant role in the campaign speeches of both candidates as the vote approaches. President Erdogan's stump speeches have seized on anti-U.S. and EU themes, as well as vowing to deport a million Syrian migrants back to their country. At a rally last month, Erdogan railed against American Ambassador Jeff Flake after Flake met with Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, accusing Washington of taking sides. During a visit to a youth center affiliated with ultranationalist groups, Erdogan sought to tie his rival to President Joe Biden. Instead of calling him Bey Kemal, a respectful form of address in Turkish, Erdogan called him Bye Bye Kemal. Biden talks from there, and Biden's ambassador here does what? Visits Bye Bye Kemal. Especially for America, we need to teach them a lesson. Meanwhile, Kilic Darolu has also gone nationalist, recently vowing to deport 10 million Syrian and Afghan migrants. Kilic Darolu has also responded to Erdogan's attacks in kind. During a speech to party faithful in the capital Ankara, he blasted the president for his early efforts to end Turkey's struggle against pro-Kurdish militants. Turkey has fought for decades against groups designated as terrorists by Turkey, the EU, and U.S. Erdogan, sen değil misin? Erdogan, aren't you the one who repeatedly sat at the table with terrorist organizations? Who negotiated behind closed doors in secrecy from our nation? How dare you question our love for our homeland? How dare you slander us? But after the first round, he also seemed to recognize that he had strayed from the moderate secular base of the party he leads. My dear citizens, 
let me state frankly that we have received your messages. However, we have millions more patriotic people to reach to bring justice, prosperity, and peace to our beautiful country. Observers say for Erdogan, this hardline nationalist posture is simply a return to his party's origins. Political consultant Selim Koru at the Economic and Policy Research Foundation of Turkey says although Erdogan came into office as a reformer, his party not only has roots in political Islam, it began life as a fierce proponent of deeply conservative views. And listen, people talk about ultra-nationalists or the far right in Turkey. If you actually look at the AK Party as a whole, its origins are in the Turkish far right. They only sort of moderated in the 2000s and they reverted back to their original position. Nathan Kohlenberg at the German Marshall Fund of the U.S. says the nationalist tone isn't only on the rise in Turkey. He points to Poland, another U.S. ally where the ruling party has also made demonizing immigrants, the LGBTQ community, and international organizations a staple of its political discourse. And so I actually think there are a lot of commonalities that you can see between the rise of authoritarianism in both countries. The opposition in Turkey, meanwhile, has a big task ahead, trying to restore enthusiasm to a voter base disillusioned by Kilic Durolu's weak showing in round one. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. And now it's time for sports. Brittany Griner back on the court. LeBron James and the Lakers on the ropes and... An NFL legend, Jim Brown, dies at the age of 87. Michelle Steele of ESPN joins us. Michelle, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Scott. And you were there in Los Angeles and were there last night when um, WNBA tipped off uh, all eyes were on Brittany Griner, Phoenix Mercury, after 10 months being detained in Russia. Uh, the LA Sparks defeated the Mercury 94 to 71. Brittany Griner led her team in scoring with 18 points. What was it like to be there? Yeah, the Mercury didn't get the win, but it was a victory, I think, uh, for Brittany Griner, for sure, to be there considering where she was less than a year ago. You know, I saw something that I don't see very often, an opposing player getting a standing ovation yeah. and loud cheers. As soon as she walked onto the court and for her first bucket, the crowd was into it. Uh, Kamala Harris, the vice president, was a bit of a surprise guest on the court as well. She praised the players for their advocacy and working to get Griner home. And you know, Scott, we're not too far away from Hollywood here in downtown LA. So lots of stars out there tonight. I guess yesterday night, mm -hmm. excuse me with the time, Magic Johnson, uh, Pau Gasol, former Laker, Billie Jean King, uh, comedian Leslie Jones. And one thing I want to mention, you know, I was speaking to her teammate, Diana Tarazi last night, and she said something very interesting to me. I asked her, how she thinks BG is sort of handling all this mentally because she's been through something that nobody in sports has been through. And she told me in kind of a deadpan way, if anyone is built for Russian prison, it's BG. Oh. She had a tough time growing up and she's really resilient. And that's what you saw from her after the game. She was smiling, she was quick to joke, and she was, you know, circumspect, I think, in a way that, that is really remarkable uh, just months after her release. Yeah. Uh, same uh, venue tonight. The L.A. Lakers face the Denver Nuggets. Game three of the NBA Western Conference Finals. The Nuggets lead 2-0. Every time the Lakers lose two games in a row, people go, is LeBron running out of steam? <laughs> then he has a way of building it back up, doesn't he? 
<laughs> yeah, sure. You know, it's funny, Scott. In any other business, uh, LeBron James would not be considered an old man. Uh, but in pro sports, he's 38. He's getting up there. And you're right. Uh, a Grizzlies player called him old a few weeks ago, and LeBron responded by eliminating the Memphis Grizzlies from the playoffs. Yeah. But there's no denying from what we've seen in the first two games of this Denver series, he's just not looking as physically dominant yeah, as he used to be. Yeah, missed 19 in a row three-pointers, I believe, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, not looking as durable as he used to be either. Now, you mentioned it. He plays tonight here in Los Angeles, game three against the Nuggets. He did tweak his ankle this week, but he says he's going to suit up. He's going to play. He's really tough. This series is really tough. And Denver has one of the best players in the NBA, Nikola Jokic from Serbia. Now, the Lakers did eliminate the Warriors in the last round, so don't count them out yet, but, you know, it's going to be a critical game three tonight. Finally, Jim Brown died at the age of 87. Cleveland Browns, in many ways, defined the position of running back. Uh, Mm. A legend on the field, a civil rights activist, but also accused of violence against women. How How do you see his legacy? On the field, unequivocally, uh, one of the greatest collegiate players of all time, many say maybe best NFL player of all time, retiring at the height of his career in the 60s to pursue acting and a civil rights activist. He was the one who set up the Cleveland Summit, that famous picture mm-hmm. with Bill Russell and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and some of the most famous black athletes of the time to show support for Muhammad Ali, who was not fighting in the Vietnam war but you mentioned it he was dogged by allegations over five decades of his life that he abused various women in his life now he has denied those accusations but scott they have doubtless marred his legacy which is complicated he is getting praised he is revered though by many of his peers by many other athletes as well as former president Barack Obama did many good things, but it is complicated. Michelle Steele of ESPN, thanks so much. Talk to you soon. You bet. Taco Tuesday has become a well-known phrase in American life, kind of like saying B.J. Lederman does our theme music. But though many restaurants promote Taco Tuesday, in all but one state, only one chain really has the legal right to use that phrase as a slogan. Save on beef tacos every Taco Tuesday. Olay the day at Taco John's. At the home of the true Taco Tuesday, Taco John's. Unwrap the original. See you on Taco at Tuesday John's. Uh, Taco John's. Taco John's, a Wyoming-based food chain with roughly 380 locations, has held the trademark for Taco Tuesday since 1989. This week, the vastly larger Taco Bell filed a petition with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office to cancel the trademark. Taco Bell says it doesn't want to own the rights to Taco Tuesday, but wants to free the term, saying Taco Tuesday, quote, should belong to all who make, sell, eat, and celebrate tacos. Of course, the petition was filed on Tuesday. Taco John's reported on Thursday with a statement from CEO Jim Creel, no mas, por favor, Spanish for no more please. We also launched a fresh Taco Tuesday special, two for $2 until the end of this month. You're listening to Weekend Edition Sabado from NPR News. 
Kyle Fair in Kyle, Texas. If your name is Kyle, you might want to head down there tomorrow. That's when they try to break the world record for the most same-named people gathered in one town at the same time. We have a Kyle here, reporter Kyle Gassett with Troy Public Radio. Kyle, I've never heard the story of your name. Well, Scott, I think it may be Scottish or Irish. If you look up the meaning of the name Kyle, the phrase fair and handsome pops up. So, yeah. Don't rub it in, but go ahead. Okay, yes. (laughs) Well, you know, this may be the best-looking place in the country with so many Kyles. And Kyle can also be a female name, so bigger the chance of breaking that record. Kyle, do me a favor. Hold up your phone for a minute. Ready? Okay. Hey, Kyle! People come running? Well... Not yet, but I'm going to try that on Sunday. That's when we're going to try to break that Guinness World Record of people with the same name. The last record was set in Bosnia-Herzegovina when they counted Ivans in one place. Now, I spoke with Communication Director Rachel Sonnier here in Kyle, and she says there's a name that we definitely don't want to hear this weekend. We have a, a sworn <laughs> enemy in the Ivans. No, <laughs> we are uh, we are hoping that we beat the Ivans that currently hold the record right now uh, with 2,325 Ivans. We're hoping that we get at least 2,326 Kyles. So what should we know about the town of Kyle? Well, first, Scott, it's a wonderful name for a city. But second, <laughs> in addition oh, to bringing yes. in people from all over the world named Kyle, yeah. they want more people to know about this town which is about the same distance between the popular Texas town of Austin and San Antonio. I met Julia Albertson this week, Scott. She owns a Texas pie company in one of the city's oldest buildings. She says the festival is great, but it's not like Kyle with a population of around somewhere around 52,000 is a secret. Even though we've grown exponentially in the last few years with it's just seen a growth explosion, it still has a very hometown feel. You still know your neighbors. You still have an opportunity to... Be yourself. So, Scott, there are 16 different flavors of pie here. And guess what? If your name is Kyle this week, Scott, you win. If you come in and prove you have a Kyle driver's license, not Kyle from Kyle, Texas, but a name Kyle, um, we'll give you a discount on a pie. A discount. You've come all the way for a discount on a slice of pie, Kyle. (laughs) Oh, mercy. So what else will you Kyles be doing? Well, this is the Lone Star State, Scott. So there will be contests for the best margaritas and the best barbecue ribs. And bands will be playing on the festival stage nearly every hour. But there's one thing you have to remember, Scott, is if you're planning on being part of the gathering of Kyles on Sunday at 4 p.m., Sonia says there are some rules. You have to show a legal ID and variations of Kyle, such as Kylie, Keel, Kyler, Kyler, Skyler, won't work. Just simple K-Y-L-E. It has to be their first and it has to be their legal name. It can't be a nickname or even if that's what you've gone by all your life, it has to be your first and your legal name. So, Scott, huh? my question is, when are you changing your name and joining us down here? You know, we, excuse me, we have several Scots here at NPR, Scott Detrow, Scott Horsley. We are planning a Scott Fest for Scotland, and we're going to say haggis for everybody. Go for it. I'm not sure we'll get anyone to come, but Kyle Gassett is with Troy Public Radio. (laughs) He joined us from uh, Kyle Fair in Kyle, Texas. I'd never said Kyle so many times in a sentence. Thank you, Kyle. Felt good, didn't it? (laughs) Thank you, Scott. (laughs) Felt good, didn't it? This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of leaking top-secret intelligence will remain in custody without bail while he awaits trial. A jack to Sheriff's detention hearing in Worcester yesterday, the federal judge said the 21-year-old from Dighton was cavalier when he posted classified documents online. Prosecutors had argued that if Teixeira were released, then a foreign government could help him flee. And the judge yesterday said he does not consider such a situation implausible. It's widely considered a long shot, but Connecticut could wind up with a hockey successor to the Whalers if the governor gets his way. Governor Ned Lamont said yesterday he's planning to meet with the NHL commissioner about the option of moving the Arizona Coyotes to Hartford. The state has lacked an NHL team since the Hartford Whalers left in 1997. It's 60 degrees in Boston with rain on the way this afternoon and tonight. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. And Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. On last week's Wait, Wait, Alonzo Bowden was skeptical of the new rules forcing airlines to treat people better. I travel a ton being a stand-up comic, and um, I have platinum status with the airlines, and they treat me horribly. I don't know what they're doing to Group 5. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagal. Your first-class ticket to this week's Wait, Wait comes with a gourmet meal, assuming you're a gourmet cook. Join us for a staycation with the News Quiz from NPR. Today at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at StoryWorth.com. From Cunard, sailing the transatlantic crossing between New York and Southampton, England on Queen Mary II, with a commitment to White Star service, fine dining, and entertainment. Cunard.com crossing. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Gracewood Gardens is gorgeous, historic, and a heritage. In Paul Schrader's new film, Master Gardener, Joel Edgerton plays Narvel, the meticulous master gardener at the fictional Southern estate, was a grim past. Sigourney Weaver is Norma, the matriarch who inherited Gracewood Gardens and wants to preserve it and wants to see if some of the harmony that Narvel has found in the garden might help Maya, a troubled grandniece she barely knows. I gave your mother everything I could. She couldn't weed her garden. Now listen to me. I came here for a pleasant lunch, and here we are in the muck of the past. That is a muck farm. And I'm sorry if I offended you, but I'm not inadequate. No, of course you're not. You are impertinent. Ooh, that's Quintessa Swindell as Maya. <laughs> Sigourney Weaver is her grandaunt. And Sigourney Weaver, the multi-timed Oscar nominee, Ripley in Alien, Gwen in Galaxy Quest, Dana in Ghostbusters, Diane Fossey in Gorillas in the Mist, we could go on, joins us from NPR's New York Bureau. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's such a pleasure. I'm such a fan of the show. 
Well, thank you. Uh, but I got to ask, because we both kind of blanched at that clip, what drew you to play a character who can be so imperious? Well, she has her imperious moments, it's true, but she's also, like really all of Paul Schrader's characters, she's quite a complex person. I've actually tried to avoid playing this kind of character. They can easily be a caricature of some sort of rich type. And what Paul Schrader, whose work I admire so much, he's, you know, the author of Taxi Driver and uh, Raging Bull and, the you know, a master filmmaker in America. And he's taking on subjects about America that no one else, I think, is taking on. In this movie, he takes on white supremacy. And there's so much going on, and I couldn't resist it, frankly. It was the kind of part where you get to chew the scenery a little bit, and I've always avoided those too. But in this one, I sort of, I felt it was delicious and awful and irresistible. May I ask, is Narvel her lover or master gardener with benefits? I think they're both sexual people, and it was a great joy to play a woman in her 70s who has a sex life, let's put it that way. And frankly, Narvel can't exactly go down the road to a bar. You know, he's in a situation where he has to stay hidden. And Norma, I don't think, finds her own class very interesting. It's a, a kind of relationship of convenience that suits them both. Hmm. Did you learn something about plants? Well, you know, I'm a very enthusiastic gardener. And the one comment I made to Paul when I met him, I said, you know, people who have gardens garden. So why don't we see Norma reaching down and deadheading as she walks through the garden and see her just without even paying any attention repot something? Because it's almost like you can't help yourself and I don't think Paul is a gardener, even though I think he's very eloquent about the art of gardening and um, the metaphor of gardening, the rebirth, but also destruction. Um, but I said, you know, I can't keep my hands off the garden. And he wanted her to be removed from that as if that was the kind of work that was beneath her. And I, I found that the one thing that I felt was not true of gardeners. Like gardeners like to get their hands soiled, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I did not know until seeing this film that some seeds can last 800 years. Did I get that right? Oh, yes, it's true. And um, probably longer than that, in fact. I don't think we know. I work with the New York Botanical Garden and they have a, a whole seed universe. And um, they're always adding to it, helping us, you know, learn more about their survival of seeds. And we're still discovering species that we haven't heard of before. What do you think people are talking about when they say, you know, like a Sigourney Weaver? I don't know. I mean, I've done so many different roles and people think of me for so many different things that... Um, Probably people would be thinking about Ripley or something, you know, a sort of strong woman. And I've always felt that I may play women who are strong, but it's because that's how I perceive women. I don't perceive certain women as strong. I really perceive women as strong. And often the characters I play are isolated for whatever reason because of some physical situation they're in or where they are in life. And 
no one is going to come to their rescue, just as, you know, no one's going to come to the rescue of many women. You know, if you look around the world, it's women who are on the front lines of climate change, who have to look after the families and the old people. And it's women who, who I think, find the strength to hold everything else together. So to me, I am reflecting what I see. I'm not trying to make a hero out of a normal woman, but I do find women heroic in what they do every day. All these years on stage and screen, is there something you're still trying to nail? <laughs> you know, I'm so fortunate because I am offered so many opportunities to do things I haven't done. I'm about to go and play a hitman's agent, and she's a very sexy, somewhat sinister, but also charming person. I've never played anyone like Laverne. Okay, that's and... Sigourney Weaver. That's what I mean. Okay. <laughs> that's a Sigourney Weaver role. But it isn't. I don't think there is such a thing. Because why is Gwen in Galaxy Quest less of a Sigourney Weaver than Ripley. You have to understand, actors hate to be pigeonholed. So the idea that there's a Sigourney Weaver type of role is something I just don't embrace. The garden has put something into the lives of people in the film. Now, without uh, entirely giving away the message, oh, I shouldn't say, you know, what's that old, you want to send a message, uh, call Western Union. Ah, well, I'd be very curious to know what you think the message is. Plants rejuvenate, like us. Mm. Or we rejuvenate like plants. That's better. Yes. One can I think that Paul would say that the redeeming power of love rejuvenates you and that the care of another human being is like tending a garden with tenderness. So we are like plants, but they will only thrive if you pay attention to them. Sigourney Weaver, now in Master Gardener, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you, Scott. It was a pleasure. Wasu was awarded the Pulitzer Prize last week for his memoir, Stay True. We spoke with the author when his book came out in September it opens with a gorgeous evocation of young Berkeley students driving around and coming of age with Hwasu alongside his best friend, Ken. At that age, time moves slow. You're eager for something to happen, passing time in parking lots, hands deep in your pockets, trying to figure out where to go next. Life happened elsewhere. It was simply a matter of finding a map that led there. Or maybe at that age, time moves fast. You're so desperate for action that you forget to remember things as they happen. A day felt like forever. A year was a geological era. We laughed so hard we thought we'd die. We cycled through legendary infatuations sure to devastate us for the rest of our lives. For a while, you were convinced that you would one day write the saddest story ever. Wasu, who is now staff writer at The New Yorker and a teacher at Bard College, joins us from Brooklyn. Thank you so much for being with us. It's a delight to be here, Scott. Please tell us about Ken. What you notice first when you introduce him to us is the differences. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, I was a typical sort of 90s 
alternative person. You know, like I really prized the clothes I wore and sort of my unusual taste in music. And when I arrived at Berkeley in 1995, I was seeking out people who were exactly like me. And Ken was very different. You know, he was really confident, sort of conventionally handsome Japanese-American dude from San Diego. He was in a frat. These are all things that I sort of disavowed as uncool. And so when we initially met, I didn't really think we'd be friends, let alone friends who ended up, you know, sharing a lot of sort of intimate dreams and hopes with one another. What do you think drew you to each other? Could it have been partly those differences? I can only speak for myself. I I was a very uh, immature person. And so <laughs> I think it's more a product of him being kind of open-minded, curious, and kind. You know, the first time we actually hung out, not me judging him from a distance, was when he asked me to help him buy some vintage clothes for a, a party his fraternity was throwing. And, you know, I think he was just really curious what made me tick, you know, why I stood the way I stood, why I was insisted on ordering the weirdest thing on the menu, why I listened to the music I listened to. We're going to play a song for you now and tell us what it calls up <laughs> in you. I bet you can guess which one. I actually can't. I may not always love you, but long as there are stars above you, you never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure. Write about this song at length. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, God Only Knows by the Beach Boys. You know, it's a song that I got into in college. Like, I just read an article about it and I, I sought it out, and it was as good as the article said. And, you know, initially I was really just drawn to how perfectly symmetrical it was. It was just such a beautiful harmony. It expressed this kind of yearning and hope that I. I secretly wanted in my own life. You know, I, I think I prized myself in being sort of sarcastic and not expecting much from the world. And it's a song that I listen to a lot with my friends, Ken among them. And so, you know, hearing it just now, whenever I listen to it, I think back to these late night drives to get donuts we would take and how all of my friends would insist on singing along to it which I found horrifying because it's just such a perfect song on its own and my friends were not particularly strong singers. But, you know, after um, Ken's passing, you know, after the nature of our, our sort of group friendship changed, like I really yearned for that sense of harmony again. And I found it actually quite haunting afterwards, this idea that something that felt so beautiful and hopeful at one point in your life could all of a sudden feel almost mocking, you know, just this this beauty no longer feels so beautiful anymore. Oh, this is, uh, this is going to be hard to talk about. One day you and your friends realized that you hadn't heard from Ken. Mm -hmm. Could you bring us back to that time? Of course. It was um, the summer between our junior and senior years, at least for most of us. And we felt like our futures were in sight somewhat, you know, just that graduation was around the corner. And Ken had moved into this apartment. He was throwing a housewarming party. And I left in the middle of his party to go to a different party. The following day, um, he failed to show up to work. And then on Monday, we realized that he'd actually been killed over the weekend. And I couldn't stop thinking about you know, leaving in the middle of his party, like leaving in the middle of our cigarette, leaving in the middle of his conversation, and even driving by his apartment later that night and later wondering 
if it had happened by then or, or sort of whether I had accidentally driven by, you know, his abduction because he was, he was carjacked. Our friends, you know, we, we all just sort of took care of one another and took care of ourselves as best we could. But, um, you know, we were all in, in very uncharted waters without really a sense of what possible routes there were. Yeah. Your friend Ken died in a carjacking, and unfortunately, we probably need to specify in 2022 it wasn't a hate crime. It's an interesting question because even at that time, you know, in the fall of 1998, when we all went back to college, I was editing this Asian American campus paper, and we actually had a conversation on staff. Um, other folks didn't know him, but they'd read about it, and they they wondered if we should write about it or sort of investigate it as a hate crime. You know, there is this sort of broader philosophical question, perhaps, like it's sort of hard not to see people through their kind of racialized identity. So who really knows what goes through the mind of a perpetrator? But according to them, it was a completely random crime. Like it just seemed like a robbery that sort of, for whatever reason, spiraled into something much worse. Yeah. Ken, in your writing, even now? You know, I've been working on this in some form for over 20 years. And during that period of time, I've written a lot of journalism and criticism. Nothing that actually touched on this, but I think the sensations I seek in music, culture, literature, politics, I think there's always been this hope, this humoring of utopian possibilities that actually goes back to this moment in which I was trying to repair the world through writing, you know, in those initial days after his death. I think he still will always show up in my desire to kind of imagine a different future than the one we have now, because I think for so long that that was the question that, that drove me, you know, this question of the futures that never came. Hwasu, his memoir, Stay True. Thank you so much for being with us. Scott, thank you so much for this conversation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru, Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. And from the Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org slash solutions. This is NPR. Next at 10 o'clock, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me here on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England with their Zootopia Gala, June 10th, supporting the Franklin Park and Stone Zoos and their mission to inspire care and action for wildlife. ZooNewEngland.org. Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com.
and Walden Local Meat, partnering with local Northeast farmers to hand-deliver 100% grass-fed, pasture-raised meat right to your door. WaldenLocal.com Thousands of miles of underwater fiber optic cable crisscross the world on the ocean floor. Over 95% of all internet traffic carried between continents goes through this physical infrastructure, these cables. And so the internet we use every day would not function without them. Now those undersea cables are becoming part of a new battle between China and the U.S. That's On Point Monday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.